Morning, y'all. I don't know if a couple of you noticed, I got up on stage a song early, and some of the kids made it look fun running up and down the stairs, and so they thought I'd give it a try. Uh, we, our situation, we, we have started a series in Romans now for a few weeks at the church, uh, and we're, the goal is to recenter ourselves on the gospel of Christ. And so as I've been studying for this series lately, uh, I've been impressed uh, reminded, pick, pick your word, how big the gospel is. Uh, we're, we're tapping into conversations that are, that are deep and that are old questions like, can man be reconciled to God? Uh, if so, how? Uh, things that have been going on for thousands of years, right? There's nothing new in the gospel, but man, it's big. It's big. Um, the conversations and the topics that go into human sin and God saving and how does that work, they're, they're not made for uh, Twitter feeds. Right? They're, they're worthy of uh, thought and attention and meditation. And so is, if that makes you feel a little bit small or even a little bit intimidated as we get into this, that, that's probably a good thing. It, it's a worthy subject of our attention, of our thought, of our engagement. The complication, at least for me today, um, we've, we've covered Paul's introduction of himself and his ministry and his thesis statement. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, the passage that we're looking at uh, is God's judgment against our sin. Right? That's his focal point here. It's a heavy subject, and it has everything to do with our rebellion and our guilt and God's righteous judgment of our sin and our guilt. All right, so the, the implication is you, you might hear something. I've certainly read things that it, it offends, right? It can hurt, um, but it's, it's God's word nonetheless. All right, so if you're anything like me, there, there is a tendency, and I've had to sort of push back against this. There can be a tendency to, uh, to reject, to dilute, to rationalize, right? To, to try and put a spin on it where it's not saying what it might actually be saying, right? So that, that's what I'd ask of you. As you listen to messages, you think with me through it, uh, just let the words speak the way that they were written, the way that they were intended. Right? The, the bottom line, this message on sin and guilt and repentance, hopefully on the other side, uh, it, it's for you. Right? Same way it's for me. Right? We, we need it. Uh, there is some hope. right? If, if we get to the point of confession and repent, uh, there could be freedom in that. The first time somebody comes to Christ, for those of us that have been walking with the Lord a long time, it's really not a whole lot different. Right? There's freedom in confession and in writing ourselves with our maker if, if we're willing to humble ourselves. Right? There's a lot of pride that can get mixed up in this. So we'll, we'll look at this in, in three parts, right? We'll look at how we, people, suppress God's truth, our idolatry, and then God's judgment against our sin, okay? Suppressing the truth, idolatry, and then God's judgment of those things. All right, so let's start with suppression. Justin made the point last week at the end of verses 16 and 17, uh, God reveals himself in one of two ways to everyone. Right, the, the first statement that Paul makes is God reveals himself in righteousness. It has mostly to do with his saving work and his redemption of people. He also reveals himself to people in wrath and in anger and in judgment. And it's going to be one of those two things for everybody. 
Uh, we're looking at the second one today, right? God's wrath. Uh, wrath, just an, an older word for anger, but that, that is the technical thought. God is angry. God is wrathful in this passage as Paul teaches. Uh, right out of the gate, the idea of God's wrath and God's judgment can sound archaic, maybe, um, petty, right? If, if, if it sort of falls on your ears strangely, if you're not acquainted with the idea of God's wrath and God's judgment, it, it can produce questions like, what, what's the big deal? Right? Why can't God just forgive and forget and move on? Right? Does he just sit in heaven looking, waiting for a gotcha moment, right? Just to visit anger on people, right? Those questions come. Uh, before I go there, right, before I answer the question, one of the things we have to bear in mind in this passage, and it's in verse 28, if you want to circle it, uh, Paul says that one of the effects of sin is a depraved mind, right? That's the word in some translations, or debased. Uh, and the idea is it's not fit for purpose. It's, it's incapacitated, right? It's not fit for what it was intended to do. So the, one of the implications there, you and I can't even ask the right questions, right? So a question like, God judges, really? How wrathful, how wrong, how hateful is that? The, the implication there is that, well, you know what? God's the one that's accountable to our morality, right? That idea of God judging, well, that offends me, and so God's on the defense, right? Do you hear that in the question, right? That's where it comes from, right? We don't think rightly. The idea of God being the standard setter and us being subject to him, well, that, that's just not the way we're wired, but let's answer the question then, right? We need to answer the question about God's rightness and judgment. And I think a simple illustration makes clear. Uh, we had a lot of kids up here just a moment ago. Um, the, the idea of someone intentionally harming a child, right? I'll just make your blood boil, right? Uh, somebody exploiting, somebody harming, someone seeking to do evil to a child. It's, it's just, it's wicked. Uh, Christ himself, he, he made this statement, it's better to drown yourself in the sea than it is to harm a child. Right? Uh, it's, it's just, it's evil and it's wicked and it's on its face. Uh, that, that said, we, we know what happens. Uh, Shannon and I have some friends, they work in the court system as child advocates. Right? There's uh, just all sorts of wickedness and horrible and nasty stuff Right? they see. So that, that sort of thing's happens. And we, we don't have to be convinced that something like child abuse or child trafficking is wicked or evil. We don't need to be persuaded. And so in that instance, it's not hard to grasp why judgment is necessary. Right? Somebody does that, there is a nasty, wicked, evil cost that's been inflicted. So somebody's got to deal with that cost and somebody's got to be held accountable. Do you agree with that? Right, so whether it's, it's something like that, it's the exploitation of the weak or the innocent or the taking of a life, um, preying on weak, marginalized folks, we can pick different examples where it's a little easier for us to see and understand and to perceive the wickedness that's going on. And there is an innate impulse to say, that, that's wrong. Right, and get fired up, rightly so. So if you read verse 20, if you look at verse 20, states that God's invisible qualities have been uh, seen and perceived, depending on the word, uh, since creation. 
Now, to, to be clear, the teaching there is not that you literally see God's power, like it's a thing you can hold in your hand, or his divinity, but you can perceive him. Right? You can perceive the effects of God's power and his divinity. So if you stick with the, uh, the example of kids right, on the stage, uh, you can see little image bearers of God, little bitty ones. Um, if you think about them, they're generally joyful, curious, precocious, uh, just teeming with all sorts of potential, right? You can kind of see what may happen, right? What you hope happens in, in the life there. Well, where does that come from? Right? Who designed the potential, right? The, and, and the idiosyncrasies and the diversity that you see in kids, right? Their personalities, their makeups, right? There's an enormous amount of wisdom and design evident in those kids, Right, so when the scripture tells us God's power in his divinity, think about divinity. Right? There's wisdom. There is faculty. There is uh, intent and purpose and goodness. Right? All sorts of things that you, you can just see on the face of a child. So somebody to go against that, to harm it, to violate it, well, that person is without excuse, scripture says. Right? Just in one example. So we don't have to be persuaded on this point because God has hardwired into everyone a sense of right and wrong. And so you, you, you begin to see it and you can begin to feel it in some cases. Evil is provocative, right? It provokes an anger. It provokes a reaction in us. And much more importantly than that, it provokes a reaction in God. Let's talk a little bit more about God's qualities. I, I did try and come up with a little, I don't know, less cliche example, but I couldn't improve on uh, Grand Canyon, right in Arizona. Um, so first thing you notice here in this picture, it, n- not a solid parenting moment, right? A lack of parental judgment. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a beautiful place. So if you can see in the, the picture there, uh, there's an amazing amount of color, right? The, the expanse of what you see, right? Uh, the forces that were involved in fashioning that, compressing things, putting it together, cutting through rock, right? If you step up to the edge and you look at it the first time, you know, in my case, the first time, you do stand there in silence just, just for a moment. You know, you begin to start talking again, but there, there is a moment there where you're like, wow, wow. Now, if you step too close to the edge, you can also feel the risk of not respecting your limits. And I looked it up, 12 people die every year for that reason, on average, right? Beauty, power, all sorts of amazing things, risk, right, if you violate it. Um, On our trip, we, we had a guide and he pulled out a pocket version of uh, the Psalms, and, and he read Psalm 19. So I'll read a few passages from that Psalm to you. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Uh, there's no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Right, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the, earth, of the world. And so you look at that, and it says something to you. 
Creation testifies to its maker. All right, pretty clearly. All right, one more. Uh, I love this image. All right, if you, I think you can see. So you can see um, a father's compassion for his son. Son's on his knees, right? There's, there's some, I don't know, shame. There's some humiliation, right? There's some things going on in this picker, picture. Uh, you look at the onlookers, right? Uh, one of them sort of clasps their hands. The other one sort of is drawn up. Uh, they're not talking, right? Mouths are closed, right? They can see something going on. There's a moment here between the father and the son. You can feel the mixture, regret, humiliation, love, and all of those things. And so uh, everybody looks at that picture uh, by Rembrandt, right? Um, and I don't have the real thing. I have a, I have a picture, right, or a print. Uh, but it, it's masterful. He is a master artist. Now, just entertain the idea for a moment. Can you think of somebody who looks at that and say, well, you know, what, what probably happened is that I bet there was a shelf somewhere with buckets of paint on it. And maybe there was some rust and some ochre and some amber. And maybe the shelf cracked. Maybe the paint fell. Maybe the paint arranged itself in such a way as to circumstantially depict the parable of the prodigal son that Christ used. Probably just happened. That, that seems likely. Right? Right? Um, no, you look at that and, yeah, Rembrandt is a master. Look at his handiwork. Now, put them side by side. Which of those two things is more complex? All right, so you think about uh, a child, right? Um, mental faculties. You can see a smile, right? There's some joy. There's some, yeah, I'm kind of getting away with something here, right? There's some delight. Um, so you see the, the, the chemistry, right, of the individual and the child. Uh, we talked about all of the power, all of the slate, all of the sand, all of the pebbles, right? The enormous momentum of water that cut through at some point to fashion the, the Grand Canyon. Uh, you can see a little bit, you can see sky, right? You can see clouds, and you can see the effect of wind blowing the clouds. You see ecology. Which of those two things is more complex, those pictures? Right? In one case, someone, capital S, made the heavens and the earth and everything in between. In another, somebody brushed oil on a canvas, and they did it well. Right? But which is more complex? Which is more suggestive of design and intent and wisdom and competence? Right? Pick your word you can begin to get a sense of God's eternal power and his divine nature, right? That's the word that Paul uses. Kind of obvious, right? Just kind of jumps off the page, jumps off the picture. Right? There's no compelling way to look at creation all around us and say, this, this just happened. There is no creator. Right? But Paul is not making the case in this passage that people have you know, concluded there is no God and there are no absolutes in good faith based on the evidence. That's not his word choice. And in verse 18, he indicts us, he indicts you and me. He says, you've suppressed the truth. The truth is obvious. 
You've suppressed it. You've denied it. What an inspired word choice. Suppression. Not ignorance, not a mistake, right? But there's something willful in getting evidence of divine majesty and power and wisdom and rejecting the fact of what you see. Right? It's, it's willful. And so just like the one who harms the child, the one that denies the existence on the evidence of God's power and his divinity, Paul says is without excuse, defenseless. Now, bear in mind, Paul is writing this letter to a church. Right? He is speaking globally. He's speaking of all mankind, but he, he's writing to a church. It's right for us to pause here right, and think a little bit about this message. Right? Our stubborn human hearts, mine at the beginning of that line, finds all sorts of ways to push back on the idea that God is who he is. Right? That he is powerful, that he is divine, that he is wise, and that he is right. Now, here's the temptation. Right? This is where I found myself during the week. Well, I, I, I'm not a denier of God's power. I would wholeheartedly agree that he made all of that. I, I would. Right, but here's the thing. That's because God is graceful to me and to you. That's not the inclination of your heart apart from the Lord. Right, and to bring it closer to home, as we move a little bit away or move into the next part of this, we're going to move from suppressing the truth, denying the truth, into idolatry. The idolatry gets more obvious. The evidence there comes closer to home for us if we're going to be honest about it. So let's, let's do that. Let's, that's, that's suppression, right? Evidence for the truth, and we suppress it. All right, so let's look at idolatry. Verses 23 and 25, Paul uses the word exchange, right? There is an exchange. There's a swap that's been had, and, and it's, it's catastrophic, right, that he's talking about. Um, verse 23 states that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, right? images of men, beasts, other things. Same thoughts in verse 25. He says we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie in order to worship something that God made, something in the creation rather than the, the creator. Right? That's the exchange. So now the first thing to see here in this passage is that, that we are all hardwired to worship something. Paul's charge is not that we've just stopped worshiping. It's that we're worshiping the wrong things. Right? The word for worship, if you do the word study on this term, uh, it's the idea of, of venerating right? or adoring. Just you know, pick that word. It's also got the idea of fear mixed in. Right? There's a tinge, there's a color, there's a patina of fear mixed in with the adoration and the veneration. All right, so hold on to that thought. That's, that's the intention. That's what we've exchanged away. That idea of venerating and worshiping the glory of God, that's been broken, right? So hold that thought for a minute. Now, the word glory, glory is getting, there, there's a couple ways, a couple pieces to think about it. Uh, it's getting at the fact that God is splendid, majestic, radiant, right? He is all of those things, um, objectively so, whether you and I recognize it, confess it, agree with it or not, he is glorious. There's also a subjective element to the term glory. It has the idea of an opinion. 
You and I forming an opinion about God. And so you put those two things together. It's not only that God is good and splendid and majestic and all of that. It's, It's that our hearts and our minds throb in agreement that he's all of those things. Right, that, that's the design. That's what we've exchanged away. Right? That's what we've traded off. Um, but the vision, right, the promise, where it's going, ultimately, I, I love this verse in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. If you want to mark it down as an aside, uh, what it does not say is the earth will be filled with the glory of God. It says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Right? So you and I and everybody else, we're going to know it. Right? It's, a, it's a reckoning. So he is all of those things before he made us, but then he made us and we agree with it and we acknowledge it. That's the idea. That's the perfection. That's the idea of worshiping the immortal glory of God that we've traded away. So when we trade it away, right, what ought to be heartfelt, what ought to be sort of a, a the impulse of our heart to love and to confess and to worship and to do all of those things with God. Well, we take those affections and, and we just go attach them something else. Something else, right? Other people, other lies, right? Depending on your society and your time of age, to animals, rocks, stones. So the idea of idolatry, right, is that we, we've just moved God, that's the exchange, moved him off of the proper place of all of our veneration and worship and, and value, and, and you set something else there. Now, it's, it's worth mentioning the idols, right? That's a concept of idolatry. They, they take different forms, right, over the ages, over um, cultures, but the root that runs through all of this is an awareness of God's divinity and his power, a suppression of that truth, and then an exchange for something else. And we have deep longings, right? We're, we're made as complex creatures. And so there, there is a drive in us to attach value, to pursue things with our time and our energy and our resources and all of that. Those capacities, right, that, that raw material is God-given, but boy, it goes wickedly astray when we attach it to other things. And so here again, right, if, if the temptation, I'm not an idol worshiper, right, well, look at your checkbook. Look at your internet history, your posts. Uh, where do you spend your time last week? Watching, talking, eating, going. Uh, when, you, when you go back and look at where your time and your money and your resources and your energy, where those things are invested, that's the evidence of what is moving within you to attach, to make a value judgment, to form an opinion, hey, it's worth it. It's worth it. And so the exchange here where that ought to be directed Godward to the glory of God and all that he is, we've attached it and attributed that and made that conclusion about something else. That's idolatry. Um, but we're not done with it, right? It, does, it, it gets a little worse. Um, Paul started this passage right, stating God made creation to testify to his character, to who he is. He made creation like you and I might make a cell phone. It's for communication. 
right? It's designed to say something about the maker. So, you know, the complexity we talked about talks about his wisdom. The sanctity of life we see in little kids, it talks about his vitality. Uh, ocean shores testify to his strength. Who else do you know defines a boundary for a sea? Right? Everything we see in creation, complex, beautiful, yeah, designed, testifies to something much, much greater in the one who made all of that stuff. Right? They're all symptomatic of something much greater in the maker. And so when Paul says, you have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, it, it's not just a lesser thing. Right? It's not just a miss on our part. It's treasonous. Truth of God for a lie, something I've done willfully. Intentionally, Paul says. Right? That's, that's the condition of the human heart. And so, if we go back to our example, since it's right for God to judge the one who harms the innocent child, how much more so is it right for God in his grandeur and in his majesty to judge treasonous hearts that defame his own glory? You see the, kind of the lesser working to the greater. And if we agree on the child, you have to agree on the maker of the child. Right? They're precious because he made them. They bear his image. They're not unique. They're not independent. They're things that he did. You guys, does that make sense? Right? That's our idolatry. Treason. A rejection of who God is. And so that's where judgment comes from. A righteous God acting rightly in response to a cost. Right? To a violation. That's the nature of God's judgment. So let's look at that, right? That's the, the third piece here. I want to spend some time on God's judgment. Um, first of all, there are three things in this passage, or, or the, the phrase is made three times, rather, God gave them up. And so the thing to notice here, when God judges, God judges. He's the one that took, or I'm sorry, that took or that takes the initiative in judgment. So I, I came into the study, I, I came into this wanting to read judgment just as the outworking, just as the consequences of the things that I do, and I kind of had a coming sort of thing. There's some level of truth to that. But Paul's point here, God is moving to judge. And I, I, okay, I don't like it, but I hear it. Right? It's his right. He's the one that takes the initiative. The form of judgment, or, or the concept, uh, we're going to get to the form, what it looks like. The concept of judgment here, when he said God gave them over, is that there, there is a rebellious tendency that's led men and women into sin. They've pursued it. And he says when he gives them up, he's confirming them in a deeper experience of their own sin. Take greed, right? I like money. I'm obsessed with money. God confirms the individual as an act of judgment, wrapped up, obsessed with money. It gets worse. All right, so it's not strictly a matter of we just make bad decisions and we get what we deserve. God's judgment, God's judgment is active, and it is confirming, right? which is harsh, but it's true. Now, there's two types of judgment that Paul talks about here. He put them in two different categories. Uh, the first one concerns human sexuality. 
It's in verses 24 to 27. Um, so just as a moment before I jump into the verses, I think sexuality is probably one of the most discussed topics in, in our culture, right? All sorts of different perspectives around the topic of sexuality today. Uh, strong feelings for sure, right? All sides of an issue, all sorts of perspective. It, it tends to get people sort of motivated, right? Uh, I had a conversation, this has been a few years ago, with a, a gay friend of mine, and the, the question was, what, what is wrong with gay marriage? It, it's two people, they care for each other. That has nothing to do with you. What, what's wrong with it? Right, strong feelings. Um, I, I didn't make a lot of headway with my friend, right? We didn't agree, right? I, I shared some of what I'm about to share with you from scripture. Uh, it divides us, right? This topic has a, a manner of dividing people, right? Uh, as you talk about it though, or as we look at this passage, bear in mind, I think Paul knew what the Roman culture was when he, when he wrote the letter, right? Now it's a church in Rome, so who knows what the makeup is in detail, but he knew at some level his word and his message was countercultural, just like it is now, right? Just like it is today, right? So if we come back to it now in these verses, Paul explains that God's judgment, his giving us up, uh, was to our own dishonorable passions. That's, that's the term, right? That's the language. And so he says, in this case, judgment takes the form of homosexuality, right? Which again, hmm. God's judgment takes the form of homosexuality, confirming somebody in that, yeah. Uh, as a Jew, Paul knew that um, sexual sin in general, but homosexuality in particular, was linked to the suppression of truth and to idolatry. All right, so let me give you some context. If you go back to Genesis, uh, you'll probably remember in the creation account, this is in chapter 1, verses 27, 26, says that God made the male and female, and he charged them to be fruitful and multiply. All sorts of meaning in that verse and in that passage, but notice who made the male and the female. God made them. God made them, right? There's an intent, there's a design, there's a purpose. God made the male and female. And, and he gave them a task in that particular instance, be fruitful and multiply, that child rearing, procreation, right? There was something in it, in God's design. Thousands of years later, uh, marriage, right? The union between man and woman uh, would be revealed as a symbol of uh, Christ and his church. And Paul's actually the one that makes that connection, right? In another letter. Right, so we, we don't have time today. The message today is not strictly on marriage, on God's intent for marriage. But for our purposes, I think what's worthwhile, right? The point to hear here is that God in his sovereignty designed the sexes and he imbued them with purpose and with meaning. And those purposes are both biological and theological. It's all all his plan. It's all his design. Right? So homosexuality, on the other hand, opposes that plan. Right? So where God says, let man and woman be joined together, a rebellious human heart says, well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to pursue a relationship man to man. And then God in his judgment confirms the individual in that inclination. That's heavy. It's heavy. Same thing's true for a woman. All right, Paul's clear in both cases here. Um, there's all, I think it's verse 
24. I didn't write it down. Uh, God's judgment and um, sexual sin, not limited to homosexuality, to be clear. But Paul's making the point that there is a divine authority that is rejected and is denied. And in its place, human will asserts itself. Now that, that's true fornication, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, pick, pick your sin. Right? It's not a matter of, well, this one's better, this one's worse than the other. Go back to the standard and the intent and the lawgiver. And anything that falls outside of that sets itself up in opposition to the lawgiver. So when my friend asked me, well, what's wrong with it? It's two people loving one another. The idea is, well, we're we're free to decide who we're going to love, what we want to do, transgresses the lawgiver. So pick pick your name. Freedom, love, self-expression. It inverts the relationship between who sets the standard and who's called to account in light of the standard. Uh, We see sexual sin, again, linked to idolatry, linked to uh, suppression of the truth. We see it in Scripture. Uh, Old Testament, you'll remember the account where Moses is up on the mountain receiving the, the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And he's there for a while. The Israelites sort of lose faith in him. Where is he? We haven't seen him. Don't know when he's coming back. So what do they do? They, they, they literally make an idol. Right? At the moment, the second commandment is being given. Thou shalt not make a graven image. They're making a graven image. Okay. Um, reject God's authority, make an idol, and then what came next? Revelry is the term in some of the old... Um, older translations, it was an orgy, right? I'm not trying to be provocative, but there was an idea with the idol and with some of the fertility cults that somehow sexual sin was part of their worship with the idol that they sort of had mixed in with Yahweh. So reject the Lord, reject the commandment, set up an idol, engage in sexual sin. That's Paul's point. There's a lot of sexual sin in this room, if I can say that, in our hearts, right? Certainly in our culture, right? Symptomatic of, of a deeper transgression, right? Of who the lawgiver is and what the purposes are, okay? One more example, a little bit closer, right? Because again, the tendency is like, well, that's Old Testament and not, you know, nobody's making a golden calf that I know, right? Just dismissive. That, that's the tendency. Um, you might remember, I remember reading a book called A Brave New World. You guys remember that book, high school or college? Um, written by a guy named Aljuas Huxley. Uh, he was an English author in the 1930s. He wrote like 50 some odd books and uh, an atheist, uh, clearly, avowedly so. And uh, both his, his book, Brave New World, and also his lifestyle, they were, they were promiscuous. And so um, in 1930s England, which has a Victorian background, I mean, there, there was plenty of pushback. And people asked him and called him out. And so, you know, the conversation came up. What are you doing? What, what, what are you doing? Right? With sort of this thinking. And so, he, boy, really clear answer. Look at this answer. Can you guys read that? I'll read it to you. This is his answer. Uh, We objected to the morality 
because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Uh, the supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. Uh, there was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We just deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. That, I mean, that's clear. There is no standard, there is no lawgiver, there is no meaning. None of that exists. So I, I do what I want. Right? Suppress the truth, set up some form of sexual expression as my own idol, and it carries me into to sexual sin. Right? I mean, he just laid it out there. Right, so whether it's clear like that or not, It, sexual sin is a contradiction, right? It's a contradiction of God's purpose. And it leads to judgment, and God confirms people in it, Scripture says. Uh, this passage and other parts of Paul's letter say that any sin, unrepentant sin, leads ultimately to death. Um. You know, it's, it's not inviting, it's not warm, it's a difficult message. But Paul is clear on sort of the, the upshot of this sin and others. Um, there's, there's two categories, right? So that, that's the physical form of judgment that Paul addresses, right? So there's a second category here. Uh, I'll call it antisocial. Antisocial. There's a laundry list of sins that he gives here. Uh, but again, what I said earlier, these sins stem, stem from the fact that our minds are incapacitated, depraved, debased, not fit for purpose. We can't function as we ought as a result of our rebellion, our suppression of the truth, God's judgment. So because we can't think clearly, right? we can't reason and act clearly, we go off in brokenness, Paul says. Uh, far from loving our neighbor, we do things like engage in malice, gossip. Uh, he includes murder on this list, uh, deceitfulness. It's interesting, disobeying parents are on the list. Um, there's a particularly scary term in here called God-hater. Okay. So... We don't love our neighbor. We, we sort of do anything but. Right? That's the, the, the symptom of the exchange and the swap. So again, here's the temptation for me as I read it. Well, I, I haven't done that one. And you know, this one only once or twice. That one's really bad. I hadn't touched that one. Right? That, that, do you, am I the only one? Right? I haven't murdered. I'm, I'm clear. Right? It's not the way to read the letter. It's not the point, right? The point is that sin manifests itself in a whole slew of different ways. And the, the bedrock principle here is that as a result of our suppression of the truth, our engagement of idolatry, the sin that flows from it, God's judgment on it, taints everything. Taints our bodies physically, taints our faculties destroys the social fabric that we're intended to have with each other, taints everything. Everything. It's heavy. 
And, and I, was, <laughs> I was hoping to get to the end of this passage and, and find the verse, and it's not here, um, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which is so true, so precious. But that's not Paul's conclusion here. Right? If you read verse 32, the end of this passage, uh, he says, not only do they commit these sins, but they approve others who commit the same sins. Prideful human heart doubles down. Right? Clenched fist, stiff neck, all the way to death. So when Paul says the wages of sin is death, physical, spiritual, it's the real deal, y'all. It's disastrous. That's the passage. What do we do with that? Um, you know, first, foremost, I'd encourage you, search your hearts before the Lord in prayer. We'll spend a little bit of time doing that here. Um, I've had to do it several times as I've studied this passage. Right? Ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Right? Say, well, you know, why is it that things so bother me that I, I just, I, I've got to get a snarky word in, I've got to one-up, right? I've got to chip away at the social fabric in a relationship with somebody. Why is that? Well, this passage and the Holy Spirit will help you figure out why that is. Right? Something is wrong inside. In your relationship, ultimately, to God that is symptomatic in the way that we act, the things that we say. Right? So search your heart before the Spirit. He'll show you the root of your sin, right? And so whether it's, it's sexual sin, right? Whether it's insolence, greed, whether it's just chippy, nasty sorts of snarky behavior, whatever it happens to be, he'll help us understand it flows back to the struggle, right, that we have with the Lord, our refusal to acknowledge. That's a lifetime of working that out, right? Even for the believer who's come to faith, I still find myself doing this, right? Still shows, shows itself, right? You and I need to confess our sins. That's kind of what it comes down to. We need to agree with God, not negotiate, not broker compromise, not kind of find a happy medium. That's, that's, that's not it. We, we have to agree. It, it's his eternal power and his divine nature. It's his truth. I'm the one that's out of order. That's what confession is, right? Owning what it is that we think and what we say and what we do. Saying it out loud to God. He, he knows it. it. It's us. We're the ones having to come around, right? The silver lining in this is that there's freedom when you do this. Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free, right? And so once you lay your cards on the table, right, we're honest with the Lord, we're honest with each other. Uh, the weight of sin begins to recede. Right? The preciousness of what we have as Christians, you know, in our grace and the forgiveness we've been given, it's sweet. Right? But you can't get to the sweetness of your salvation and of the grace that's available to you without seeing this for what it is, right? The sinfulness that's in our hearts. Second, you and I, we, we need each other. We need Christian community. I talked a little bit about the social fabric, fabric that has just destroyed by sin. Uh, but we need each other's encouragement, right? I, I need to hear Moy and the worship team lead us. 
right? I need an accountability partner to ask me how things are going. Uh, Because if we begin to point each other back to our authoritative king, right, and we worship together confessing his divinity, well, then that's going to change the way that we relate to one another, right? That'll shape the fabric of this relationship, right, this community, And so instead of the laundry list of antisocial behavior that just breaks people apart, we start loving each other, forgiving each other, serving each other, and it's it's contagious. Right? A, um, A group of broken sinners redeemed by a gracious king God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, substitute God-haters, while we're over there hating God, God died for us. God loved us, right? So that community of people that live in that reality that worship our king for everything that he's done for us, right? For who he is. Um, It looks different, right? It's different. And, And we invite others into that same fellowship, come meet my king. And that's the last part here. So again, think about this growing, not perfect, not growing, or I'm sorry, not perfect, but but growing, healthy group of believers. And that's just so different than where we humans are in brokenness on our own, right? I mean, it's not hard to find brokenness, right? Just look around, it's out there. Far from judging, right? It's not our place here to judge, But seeing that distinction between hearts inclined to worship the immortal God in all of his glory and hearts that are not, right? That distinction is, it's stark, but we have have an explanation for it in this passage. It's like light piercing darkness. And so we hold out that light of Christ and the gospel that we're going to continue studying in hope, right? That friends, neighbors, family members, they'll get the same Jesus that you and I have. They'll be invited in the, the same way that somebody else invited us. Right? I think that's where we take this. Right? May the Lord make it so. Let's pray. Uh, Father, our our consciences bear witness to the fact that we are broken and sinful and that you are holy and perfect and kind and faithful and true. Uh, We agree now with you that our hearts are far from you, that our wills, oh Lord, they're willful. Um, And so we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to confess uh, to one another if we need to. but to, to be real, right? To acknowledge the truth that you already see about us, but to bring ourselves to the point of confession and repentance and that you would heal us, Lord, as you are faithful to do and as you have promised to do if we come in humility and repentance. So Lord, would you glorify yourself in that way now and work confession, work conviction so that the majesty of your gospel can begin its its. It's transforming work 
or continue its transforming work in the lives of your people. God, we, we just confess that you were king and that you were God and that you were right and true and just in all your ways. Amen.